Let's take you back to 2001. We've just had the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York and the UK and all its army bases are on high alert. Jeff Gray was 17. He was from Hackney in East London and he was serving at Deep Cut Army Barracks in Surrey. He was a trainee soldier and he died of two gunshot wounds to the head. Was Jeff shot by another recruit? Was he killed by an unknown attacker? Did he take his own life? More than 17 years after he died, his family is learning the truth about what happened in his final moments. This is the third case to be brought to Fresh Inquest following the deaths of the so-called Deep Cut Four. Private Sean Benton, Private Cheryl James and Private James Collinson, whose family is yet to secure a new inquest, all died within a six-year period. John Cooper QC is representing the Gray family, Jeff's mum Diane and dad Jeff Sr. I'm Kyle Ark and along with fellow journalist Barry Keevans, we'll be bringing you all the latest from the inquest into Private Gray's death. We'll bring you the highs and lows from court each week. We'll help you understand what's happening and who the key players are. We'll hear about underage soldiers drinking alcohol, security incursions on the camp and an anonymous letter sent to the family's legal team in the final weeks of preparation. And we'll hear much, much more. The inquest is expected to last for more than six weeks at Woking Coroner's Court. We'll be there every step of the way. This is Deep Cut, the inquest. Well, welcome back, Barry. It's uh, the third podcast this week, here to talk once again about Private Jeff Gray and the inquest. And um, as you've just tweeted, we're interested in any questions from, from any listeners, aren't we? Yeah. If anybody's got anything burning, any burning questions, anything they need to know about, I mean, I'm sure people are curious about the process as well and how the day kind of plays out in court and the kind of stuff that you don't get time to write about, really, like what goes on in, in the course of a day and who's around mm. in court. And and there are some elements that we, we almost take for granted in a sense because we are so used to this process, but it is quite alien to a lot of other people. I mean, we're in a, a bit of a break in terms of the inquest as, as well at the moment, aren't we? So that's that's a little a little unusual, not, not entirely unheard of, but it's a, it's a little unusual. So um, there's a bit to talk about this week, but um, maybe not. It's um, a planned break and not a delay. <laughs> I mean... We're quite used to having delays before, but this we've known we've known that there was going to be a week off uh, since we got the the first timetable for this inquest. So mm-hmm. yeah, we knew that there was going to be a week off. This is because of uh, other commitments for the QCs, isn't it? So that's it, other cases, other things that they need to be at. So they plan this into the schedule. So that's one of the other questions that people might have as well. Is how does it work out that you end up with a week's break? Well, yeah, it's because people have other commitments and there's an awful lot of management goes on in the background as well where you know if you're going to have live witnesses you have to make sure that they're able to come on the day that you want them and if they can't then you have to rearrange and the coroner's officers and the uh, councils to the inquest sort all this stuff out in the background and of course i mean people are you know that they are called to give evidence but they also there is an appreciation i guess to an extent that they have you know they have jobs to attend they have you know they have lives and so there is a there's a little bit of being able to accommodate people in terms of giving evidence if they're not able for for legitimate reasons to attend in a way that might not be given so easily in a criminal case if you're called to give evidence. Very often the difference in a criminal case is that you've got somebody in custody. <laughs> so they, they could be yeah. brought up to give evidence whenever... I, I meant more the other witnesses. But um, but yes, I take your point. Anyway, let's talk about what we've uh, what we've heard about um, in the inquest uh, since the last podcast. Um, there's been a little bit more... I mean, we talked previously about sort of Jeff's personality, what kind of a lad he was. Um, and, and there's been a little bit more about 
that sort of more evidence from people who knew him who were close to him and some who just sort of knew him as an acquaintance really in passing a lot to do with the nature of the camp as well it's a i don't want to say transit camp but it's it's it is a, a camp that people passed through really that nobody was ever going to be there very long you were just there. they would have finished their basic training they would arrive at deep cut and then they would maybe go off for other training at leckenfield or they would go off to to their units and their regiments and and to different different places so the throughput of people is fairly high and um as we've learned from the previous inquest as well sometimes people make very strong friendships that only last for a couple of months because they are in a a fairly intense environment with somebody and Mm. you form a bond with them that lasts for as long as you're there sometimes that carries on afterwards and sometimes it doesn't and Mm. i think and also one of the things that we certainly learned in the first two inquests and has come up a little bit in this one as well is that people after a, a major event like somebody being found dead that you've had some contact with that then becomes a major event in your life as well and of course and it makes you bond very closely and very quickly with those around you who are experiencing i'm sure people go over and over and over all of this in their heads all you know every now and again you know and so that intense relationship that you might have had with somebody that didn't last very long because of what happened to them, then becomes a major part of your life as well mm. and let's not forget that a lot of the people around him were also very young adults teenagers as well themselves and so the intensity of that experience is is almost magnified by their age as well isn't it yeah and from from everything that people have said about jeff who who met him in passing or knew him for a long time everybody said that that anybody who met him would have been impressed by him would have he would have made an impression he's very highly thought of by i mean there hasn't been anybody who's got a bad word to say about him yet and not only for his discipline and his ability to get on with his training and what he was being told by the army but also by his ability to to you know work hard play hard he was certainly known for his partying and his love of the ladies as well wasn't he uh, yeah he was described as superhuman when it came to partying and uh, there have been quite a few anecdotes about his uh, ability with uh, <laughs> his ability with the opposite sex I'd be able to pick up girls but also able to switch it back on at work when he needed to and that didn't impact it didn't actually deflect from his ability to get through what he needed to get through work-wise at deep camp I mean, that, that's kind of the impression I think a lot of people might have of what a professional soldier is like, you know? I've known a couple, but not many. I was going to say, there's certainly, yeah, there's certainly a few I've encountered over the years of, uh, yeah, party hard, work hard. You, you know, when you switch off, you switch off, but when you switch back on, you are on absolutely 100%. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a description of a professional soldier that many people would recognise. But you've heard in court that he sometimes got a little emotional when he was drunk now did you get the impression that was sort of um you know as teenagers do or that he was a little more prone to that than you know your ad- average roughy tufty boy it's the only time anything like that's ever come up so far and it didn't seem to be that big a deal yeah it was he sometimes got emotional when he was drunk but i don't know how many times have you you know, he was only 17 what age did he start drinking <laughs> you know what i mean he wasn't supposed to be drinking because mm. he's only 17 but I didn't put too much store by that. I mean, I, it seemed to me that it was maybe something that had happened once or twice, but his friend who was 
talking about it, didn't think it was that big a deal either. And he certainly couldn't remember any reason for it. He had another sort of way of helping him in a sense, I, I guess, in, in terms of uh, sort of being able to pick up the ladies and this, this boxer trainer routine. Just tell us about that. That struck me as being another example of a kid who probably had a bit more of a plan than, any, than, than most might at that age. He had a friendship with one of the larger guys that we've seen at the inquest so far. I would guess he's probably about the biggest kid in the in the camp. And Jeff was very friendly with him and they used to do this routine in bars around Camberley where he would pretend to be a boxer and Jeff would pretend to be his trainer. And that was their shtick that they used to pick up girls. But um <laughs> all these stories about what he's what he was like when he was socialising, they all seemed to be describing a, a, a teenage boy who was more than capable of enjoying life. Yes, he was he was having fun and making making the most of, of his life. And you've started to hear evidence from the, the night that he died as well. In terms of the trainees um, who were his peers at the time who have started to give evidence, what have you heard from them so far? Well, I think we're going to hear obviously an awful lot more of this about who was there, when they were there, what they knew and when they knew it. But one thing that did strike me from one of the early accounts that we've had so far was that one of the guys who was sent up to, in the, in the kind of second search party that went to look for Jeff, he said that when they got up near to where his body was found, they were going through one of the, the buildings, which has an archway in it, and they were there with regimental police. And... They, somebody heard a noise, or they, he said they all heard a noise, like somebody climbing over the fence. And the regiment of police told everybody, get down. Now, the thing that struck me about that was that if armed, experienced regiment of police were as jumpy as that, still within an hour of, the, of um, Jeff going missing, I took from that that they didn't assume that it was suicide right away, because... If they're that jumpy, that the sound of what was possibly somebody going over the fence it was enough to give the order to take cover, then they couldn't have assumed that it was suicide right away. Or at least they weren't sure of what was happening. They weren't sure of what was going on. There were possibilities open. There's no certainty there. You know, there's if you find a body, and then mm. you hear a noise, and this is mm. an hour after, give or mm. take, then. Yeah, as you say, there are possibilities open there. And what have you heard about the uh, the number of shots that were heard from within the camp around the time that Jeff died? Uh, well, this is always going to be an issue because you have got people hearing noises from different areas of the camp and you've got a weapon that fires on full auto or repeat and you've got a weapon that has so many rounds left in the mag and you've got so many cartridges, spent cartridges found and you've got so many fired rounds being found as well. So the, it's always going to be an issue about how many shots was it on automatic or single shot and mm. what does that sound like and what does it sound like from where you are. So people heard shots from the guard room, people heard shots from, you know, I'm sure we'll hear... Like exactly the same as in Sean's and Cheryl's, that people hear the same events but differently because they're at different distances, they've got different things in between them and the, the sound, so it's really hard to pick all that apart. Yeah, I mean, well, you've got the distance of time between the event and now 
but you do have statements to go on that were taken much more contemporaneously than in mostly mm. than in in Jeff's and, and uh, sorry in Cheryl and Sean's inquest. So the accounts are fresher, but yeah, as you say, people's memory does change over time. We know that. Yeah, the number of shots, whether or not it's single or auto, is going to be something that we'll hear a lot about. And and that is a key thing for the coroner to decide from all the evidence that he hears. Once we get into the forensics, it's going to get complicated because we know that there will be conflicting forensic reports. Now, let's just talk about his funeral for, for a moment. We've heard bits and pieces about Jeff's funeral, who was there, who wasn't allowed to go, who who spoke to the family, who who didn't. What else have you... We kind of touched on this a, a little bit last time, but what else have you, you kind of learned? We've learned that, not surprisingly, this is a very emotive and emotional subject for people because... Some people were allowed to go and some people weren't. Jeff's boxer friend, or his uh, his pretend boxer friend, he wasn't allowed to go, and they were very close. And this will have this will have come from the army, deciding who was allowed to attend and who wasn't. Yeah, and and I think we'll probably hear some explanation about that as well as to who was allowed to go and who wasn't and why. Or we'll, we'll, certainly, we'll certainly have those questions asked. I would have thought. Again, there are conflicting accounts of what actually went on at the funeral too. Um, not so much the funeral, but the, the week after. And the conversations between family members, friends, yeah, serving personnel. Yeah, and we should get that first hand, hopefully. Obviously, we've we've both referred back to the inquest into Cheryl James and, and Sean Benton um, during these discussions. And there is, uh, there's been an update um, sort of with regards to the Sean Benton case um, over the last uh, sort of couple of weeks as, as well, hasn't there, in terms of um, Surrey Police now uh, opening a new investigation um, following evidence at, at Sean Benton, Private Sean Benton's inquest. What can you tell us about that? Where are we with that? What have you managed to glean from Surrey Police with regards to that? Uh, well, th- this is a bit different now because um, we're looking at a criminal investigation. Now, the, we're free to talk about the inquest as much as we like because because even though it's ongoing, it's in front of a judge sitting alone as a coroner. Uh, so there's no jury to prejudice and the risk of prejudicing his uh, owner, mm-hmm. Mr uh, Judge Peter Rook, you see, is, is minimal to vanishing. But in a criminal investigation, we do have to know what we can say and what we can't. And at the moment, the last I checked with Surrey Police, um, they haven't arrested anybody. Uh, I have asked again if if they've interviewed anybody under caution, which is a kind of what you might do before you arrest somebody, um, mm-hmm. and they haven't confirmed one way or the other as yet. The first story that I ever wrote about Deep Cut was about a sergeant being interviewed under caution in relation to one of the four deaths. And I think we're back in a situation now where if Surrey Police haven't interviewed anybody yet, they probably are going to very soon on the floor. What they have confirmed is that there is a new criminal investigation into allegations of assault and misconduct in public office. So I'll keep on at them, but so far they're being quite tight-lipped on it. But This has come off the back of Sean's inquest? Yeah. So uh, at the end of of uh, Sean Benton's inquest. The same coroner that we have now, Peter Rick, his conclusions were thorough. It took him all day to read it. And uh, he did single out quite a few people. And he mm. singled out 
specific allegations as well. And he said that he believed these allegations. So the police are duty bound to do something about that, especially, you know, somebody of the, the level of experience of Pierre Rick isn't going to, he's not going to say that if he, he doesn't mean it. You know? Yeah, I would expect developments there soon. But again, because that's an active criminal investigation, there's not an awful lot. Yeah, it would be very restricted on, on, on what we can talk about with that. Okay, well, back to court very soon and uh, another podcast to follow in due course. Yeah, and hopefully Mr Cooper's got his tooth fixed and we'll have no early morning trips to the dentist again. (laughs) Indeed. Thanks, Barry. Well, we will be updating the podcast weekly. You can subscribe on iTunes and on all of the main podcast platforms. We'll be discussing the main points of evidence from the past week. And we are, of course, interested in hearing from you. If you served at Deep Cuts, if you knew Private Jeff Gray, do follow us to keep up to date on all of the main points of evidence from Working Coroner's Court here and on Twitter. Deep Cut, The Inquest.